and welcome to a special bonus episode of Battleground the Falklands War with me, Saul David, and Patrick Bishop. Today we're going to play an extended interview with Steve Hoyland, who in 1982 was a parachute-qualified radio operator in the Royal Artillery's 148 Commando Battery. Okay, thanks, Steve. Thanks so much for agreeing to appear on the podcast. Um, so if we can start off with you just telling me your rank and unit in 1982, and then a little bit about how you got down to the Falklands. 1982, uh, I was a, a radio operator first class, uh, brackets general, which means I was a, a sparker. Uh, so I was responsible for radio communications as opposed to tactical or flag communications. Um, I'd been in 148 battery since the previous April. Uh, I'd done the commando course, followed by a lengthy naval gunfire assistant course, uh, which included communications, uh, artillery spotter, naval gunfire assistant and artillery signaler. Um, I'd then gone on to do P Company in the January of 1982. Actually, I had my 21st birthday on P Company. Um, another guy in the battery, Paul Burton, and I had gone down into Aldershot with one plastic bag full of trousers, one plastic bag full of shirts, <laughs> all of them full of mud. Uh, we put them into the laundrette, went and had a pint, went back, put them in the dryer, went back and had another pint, and then went back to camp ready for the uh, steeplechase the next morning. And that was my 21st birthday. From there, straight to Bryce Norton on Paracourse, and then back to Poole. Friday morning, uh, we were due to leave on leave that afternoon, so the previous evening we'd all been down the town for a, a bit of a session, as you can imagine. Uh, and then the duty battery security orderly came in and told us we were uh, off to the Falklands and we had to go over the block and be there in the next 20 minutes. We all thought it was a wind-up, so we all went back to sleep. Uh, he came back about 10 minutes later and said, the sound major says you've got to be over there in five minutes. Uh, we threw a load of boots at him and that sort of thing, and then everybody sort of leaned up on one shoulder and looked at each other and thought the worst. Um, so we all hurriedly got dressed, went across, had a brief from the, uh, the Sergeant Major that we were all off to the Falklands uh, and we should be prepared to move within hours. Uh, in the actual event, I didn't leave until I think the middle of the next week on Sir Percival. Uh, we sailed from Marchwood at Southampton down to Ascension Island. At Ascension Island, uh, we were there for, I think, probably a week or so. Uh, we did naval gunfire training with some of the ships just to, to get their ops teams up to speed uh, because some of them hadn't practiced for quite a while. As you can imagine, any sort of gunnery or any sort of training is cyclic. Some of them had just finished gunnery training down at Fost, so they were pretty well up to speed. Mm. Some of the others had been on other tasks, so we needed to get them up to standard. Um, I remember one particular um, day we went on HMS Antelope uh, and it was the final gunnery train I think she did before um, she went down south. But uh, we had a great time on board. We had a great relationship with the guys on board. Uh, and later on when she was sunk, uh, it did have a bit of an impact on us because we knew quite a lot of them very well. Yeah. Um, also on Ascension, we did the usual sort of ranges, um, route marches, etc., to get ourselves up to speed. It was a little bit odd in that Ascension was near the equator. Uh, the heat was intense. It was doing a, a CFT then, and then uh, going down south where it was essentially winter was uh, was odd. But, um, yeah, I mean, we, we take it, you know, one extreme to another. We, we've been Arctic trained, we've been desert trained and uh, jungle trained. So it's just another day in the office, really. Mm -hmm. uh, at Ascension, we transferred down to Fearless, or onto Fearless, rather, and then we sailed south uh, to the TZ on Fearless. There'd already been some, uh, some NGS taking place uh, as we were en route, Obviously, South Georgia had taken place 
uh, with um, 148 battery involved with uh, 2-2 SAS uh, on Pebble Island to, to take out the uh, the airfield there. Um, the news of that and the success of it had already gotten back to us anyway, so we were all quite on a high, really. Um, it had been the first time NGS, I think, had been used since probably Korea, but um, we were all very enthused about it because it had been so effective. Uh, and the stories we were getting back, or the information, rather, we were getting back through our party boss um, was that it had been effective, it had been the right place, it had been timely, so when it had been asked for, it had been there. The issue surrounding NGS, and we'll get onto them a bit later on, no doubt, are that it's not always available. Um, various things can, can affect it, so C-state, anything above C-state 4, perhaps 5. Um, the gun will, will probably go out of angles and out of its arcs and won't be able to engage the target necessarily. So if it's rough weather, it can be a real issue. Um, the availability of the ship itself, if it comes under air attack or some other attack, attack it will you know, somewhat selfishly defend itself before providing fire to us, but um, understandably perhaps. But the fact that it had been so successful down there, it boded well for what we were going to do later on, I think. So we were on quite a high. Um, when we got down there, we transferred from um, HMS Fearless to HMS Antrim. Antrim had already done some deception NGS for, at various other places. Uh, and she'd been on support, I think, for uh, some of the wreckies that had gone in from SF prior to that as well. So uh, she was already grounded, whereas we were sort of fresh off the boat, no pun intended. Um, on Antrim, everybody shook out. We met up with the guys from um, Poole, the SBS guys, uh, and a couple of guys from Hereford who brought along a 50-millimeter mortar, which is a, and it was a very new thing. I would think it was actually on trial still, but um, still very useful. But, yeah, we all shook out. Um, got all our gear packed. We went down to the dining hall where they very kindly put a, uh, a scale hanging from the deckhead so we could weigh our kit. Everybody had well over 100 odd pounds just in a Bergen. Mm. Uh, and then with your weapon and your weapon on top of that, it was, uh, it was quite a load um, to the extent that when we actually uh, got onto the, the helicopter um, and it was Antrim's helicopter we were going ashore in initially, uh, which was nicknamed Humphrey. Uh, and flown by um, Lieutenant, I think at the time, Parry, who later obviously went on to be a, an admiral. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, we crowded in. Um, it didn't necessarily go according to the uh, the manifest because people were in and out. The helicopter literally couldn't get off the deck uh, with seven of us, I think, in there with all our kit. Um, bearing in mind, it's an anti-submarine helicopter. It's got lots of anti-submarine equipment in it already. So it's it was Wessex 3 as opposed to Wessex 5. And mm -hmm. Wessex 5 is the commando variant uh, and is basically a, a shell, so you can get more and more troops and equipment in it. I think it carries 16 off the top of my head. But um, certainly the uh, the poor Wessex 3 struggled, couldn't get off the deck. A couple of guys jumped out with their kit. Um, I think he managed a low hover then, but I don't think he was particularly happy with it. So landed again. I think another guy got off, and in the end, I think there were only four of us went in, in the helicopter. Um Later on, they managed to get a Wessex 5, I think, from Fearless. And, and that sort of, with that helping, it, it, we sort of started to catch up a bit on time. But given the initial issues with weight and everything, I think we were still quite well behind when we initially landed. Um, as we landed, uh, we're about four kilometres from uh, Fanning Head um, on the top of a ridge, slightly downside from uh, Port San Carlos. So we were to the east, purely because we knew the enemy were at Port San Carlos. Um, 
what we didn't want to do was obviously be skylined to them uh, and be able to be engaged by them from Port San Carlos or positions near there. Uh, it took quite a while for everybody to get ashore. It, we had to make more trips than were perhaps necessary, but purely because of the availability of the aircraft uh, and the delay initially in getting going. Um, as we were going along, we were on the, the backside of the ridge, as I say, contouring the ridge down towards Fanning Head. And it was um, it was quite hard going. The ground itself, very much like Scotland or, or you know, Penny Fan, places like that. Lots of tussock grass, baby heads to break your ankles, lots of mud, peat, rocks. So it was quite difficult ground. And in the darkness, um, yeah, it was a bit of a struggle. Um, we were all in a, a commando snake, as they call it. So we're all in single file. You couldn't be too spaced out because you'd lose touch with the guy in front of you. Mm-hmm. So ordinarily, we're, you know, we don't like to be bunched as infantry soldiers, but we had to be fairly close to each other. It was a tactical decision, and it was the right decision, I think, at the time. Well, we weren't actively engaged in anything. Um, the enemy, as far as we knew, didn't know we were there yet, although they kind of failed to notice the noise from the helicopters going in and out. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we, we would go perhaps only a few hundred metres uh, and then have to have a, a quick rest. And if you did sit down, it took the two guys next to you to haul you back up with all your kit. And likewise, you know, it went on down the chain. Everybody did the same. When we got down to the end of the ridge uh, and we were then on the spur overlooking Fanning Head, it had started to get quite light. Um, we knew they were there. They knew we were there by then, I think. Um, I can't honestly remember how it, it sort of got initiated, but I suspect it was probably for Mantrum anyway. Um, we we did have a, a Captain Rod Bell with us from the Marines. He had a Marine with him who was carrying his loudspeakers. Uh, he wanted to go forward to get the Argentines to surrender. Laudable, but uh, in you know in hindsight, perhaps not the, the best idea. If you're going to start a war, yeah, the talk has already been done. If you're ashore, you know it's just going to happen. Get on with it. And because it was light, we were on a very exposed position. You couldn't dig in because it was it was just all rock. Um, a thin layer of peat, and then just rock underneath. So, yeah, it, was, uh, it wasn't a popular decision, I think, with anybody there, especially the seniors, uh, many of them very experienced. So uh, he went forward. He got no response, I don't think, anyway. Um, and then there was some sort of desultory firing from, from their uh, locations. Um, after that, he came back, uh, and it was decided that they'd had enough. You know, we couldn't get them to surrender. We observed some of them start to move towards us. There was nobody with hands up. Uh, they were trying to move as far as I remember, and I can't be 100% to be quite honest, but if they weren't tactically uh, moving, then they were certainly you know, not showing themselves to be obviously surrendering. Um, Antrim started firing then, so my boss, uh, Hugh McManus, brought down some fire as a demonstration. So we aimed off from where they were. And it, it was one of the one of the roles of artillery is demonstration. So you don't need to blow everything up or destroy everything. You know, you can neutralize things, the psychological aspect of it, the, the harassment as, aspect of it. So destruction isn't always the aim, and it's seldom the aim, to be honest. But um, as a demonstration, 10 rounds of 4.5-inch going off in the, the night, very loud, psychologically intimidating for us, and, and we were on their side. But... Um, yeah, it's uh, and the noise as well reverberating around the rocks and the features. It was really, really loud. Antrim can't have been that far away, I don't think, at the time, because the uh, the sort of the crumb from her firing didn't arrive very much after the crumb of the actual detonations going off. Mm. Uh, anyway, cut a long story short, we uh, we start to get a bit further into the the firefight. 
they're starting to fire back. They're not giving up. Um, they did have some mortars that they were, were mortaring us with. I don't think they were particularly effective because I don't think they knew exactly where we were um, from a perspective of their observation. So the guys in front of us obviously knew where they were, but getting that message back to the mortars and getting them ranged onto us, I think there was a there may have been an issue or a disconnect there. Uh, having said that, coming under fire, it's not fun anyway. Um, the guys we had with us, the 50 mortar was going. Uh, we had six GPMGs with us. Uh, they were all firing, and they were all quite closely packed together as well. So the, the sound from that going, that was very impressive. Um, obviously, we have to conserve ammunition, but we still want to do the. Uh, we still want to to take the effect to the enemy. So um, yeah, there was lots of fire going down. Uh, eventually, it sort of it drizzled out as a firefight. Really, by that stage, uh, Antrim had fired nearly a couple hundred rounds, mostly in in salvos of ten. Um, and mostly fused air bursts, so proximity to burst over a target as opposed to, to um, point detonating. If we tried point detonating onto the target, if we'd hit a rock, it would have been great. It had gone off, caused widespread damage. If it had gone into the peat and detonated, uh, then most of the effect would be taken up by the peat and there'd be very little explosive effect, or very little killing effect. So air burst was ideal. The ground is pretty waterlogged. Uh, all the rocks are wet anyway, so the radar fuse in the proximity round will get a good return. So it will almost invert. In fact, if it doesn't mal malfunction, it will go off. And it will go off at an appreciable height over the target. So the effect is more widespread. The splinters travel further. And certainly the sound and the concussive wave is, is greater as well. Um, yeah, it was uh, it was very light by then. Um like I say, the, the fire had sort of the firefight dissipated out rather than anything else. Um, we were getting very little fire from them, if any, and then it stopped. A uh, couple of them came forward and surrendered. Um, one of them was a corporal, and we then used him as a guide for the first clearance patrol that went out. Um, I went out with that patrol. We went down to the uh, north, think about the southeast um, corner of Fanning Head, and then contoured round to the east and then to the, the north. As we went, uh, we found one Argentinian. Um, he was seriously wounded. He had a, um, a, a massive leg wound uh, and he was grey. And we thought he was on his last legs, to be quite honest. There was a little discussion about, well, if we're to, you know, going forward on a patrol, we're leaving somebody potentially behind us who could point out where we've gone and so on and so forth. Um, it didn't last very long. They, they, we radioed for a medic, and, and the, the second patrol with the medic came out and looked after him. And he did survive, I heard later, which was great. Um, from there, we went down to uh, the coast, uh, to the north east of Fanning Head, which overlooked uh, Falkland Sound. By this stage, we'd seen all the ships coming past, and they'd all gone round in Port San Carlos. The landings had already begun. There were still ships coming past and coming through, um, and some of those we could see uh, the Matlows roll at the sort of action stations that the guns are out with their anti-flashes on. So when we came across the mortars and the, the 105 recordless rifles that the Argentinians had, um, we were yeah we were loath to sort of blow them or, or, or anything, damage them in case just being near them was enough for the, the Matlows to sort of engage us. Um, in the end, we broke off the Venturis, um, and from the mortars, they were just dismantled and, and thrown down. From there, the patrol carried on a little bit further to the east, 
by then it was obvious that we weren't going to find very much more. Um, we did come across one officer and a couple of other guys. The, the officer, it was deemed he should go back uh, immediately uh, to be questioned. So myself and one of the guys from SPS, Jan, who was their signaler, uh, we started off back with the corporal who'd been our guide because he was very, very tired at the time, um, and this officer. Um, as we were going back, uh, there was some conflict between the officer and the uh, the corporal. Um, we didn't know what it was. We didn't understand what he was saying. But uh, all of a sudden, he sort of he made a beeline towards the corporal. We didn't know what was going on. I dropped down, drew a bead on him. I shouted to Jan, you know, what's he doing? And uh, Jan went forward, waved them apart. And the officer had basically, we'd given the, the corporal some dextrose tablets just to keep him going because he was so tired and he was cold and miserable. Uh, and the officer had basically demanded them all of him. So he demanded he handed them over. So uh, he didn't get them, needless to say. Um, we firmly disabused him of his position and, and we carried on back. He was handed over for question at the end. Uh, what I remember from there really is the Argentines were sat around uh, in a huddle they were being questioned uh, one by one by Rod Bell. Uh, it was just the, the basic interrogation. Who, who are you? What are you? Uh, I think apart from the officer, there wasn't a lot going on. Um, we'd all tied white armbands on and white bandanas on by then, so the powers that were going to come up through our area uh, didn't shoot us and knew we were friendly forces. Uh, and the only memorable thing from there, really, that I remember is uh, there was a ship out in the, the middle of Falkland Sound by itself, uh, goalkeeping. And I, it, would, it would be one of the 22s. I'm not entirely sure which one. But um, the sun had just come up in the east, which is over my right shoulder. I'm looking sort of 11 o'clock ahead into the sound at this ship. And all of a sudden, there was a, um, a white streak of smoke went straight up from the ship. And then there was an explosion midair. And it was like a comic book explosion, orange flames, Lots of black smoke, lots of debris spinning out with black trails coming off. Uh, the trail of white smoke actually carried on through the explosion and up into the, the atmosphere. But the the sliver of, of sort of mirror that had been on the top of it was sort of reduced by half size. Um, obviously, an aircraft had been shot down. Um, but, yeah, it was just it was surreal, uh, especially given it was, you know, it was so quiet. The light, light conditions were beautiful anyway. Uh, and the, the missile that was on the end of it had caught the sun and just looked like a little sliver of, of mirror. But, um, yeah, it was, it was sad that somebody had been shot down. But at the end of the day, we'd been in Air Raid 1 in red almost constantly. We'd been looking out for it. No aircraft had come past us as far as I remember. But, um, you yeah, that was my first night ashore anyway. We rustled up the prisoners. Uh, we were then ordered to go down to uh, Partridge Valley, which is a little re-entrant that ran down to the left uh, as you're looking at Fanning Head from our position. And then from the beach there, there was a landing craft that picked up the prisoners and then took them back to, I think, Canberra. Great account, uh, Steve. Thanks so much for that. I, I wonder if that, that ship was, well, it sounds like it was one of the anti-aircraft destroyers, doesn't it? I mean, it, they've already... it, was, it was either, yeah, it was one of the 22 frigates uh, yeah. and they had no guns on them anyway. So uh, and the what I'm assuming is that the, the missile was a Seawolf yeah. Okay. Oh, you think it was one of the twenty-two? It could have been broadsword. I think. I mean, broadsword was oh, doing a lot of work. I think it probably was. Yeah. 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 
Okay. I think Broadsword and maybe Battleax were the two that were down there that time. But, yeah, great, yeah. great, great account, Steve. Very pithy and uh, you know, and um, uh, and full of detail. Thanks so much for that. That's great. Now, can you tell me? Um, j- just move the story on now. Where, where where did you go next, and and what happened? Just just some of the more some of the other highlights, basically, of, of your time down there. Good okay. and bad. Um, after that, I think the next thing I did was uh, so we were on HMS Plymouth. Uh, she detached herself down to the south, sailed down to the, the south of uh, Falkland Sound. Um, we were in a, uh, I think it was a rigid inflatable boat, uh, which we may have borrowed from the ship, to be quite honest, but um, overloaded. We were all in dry bags, so uh, diving suits, warm clothing underneath, uh, boots on top, windproof smocks on top, uh, and a webbing belt on top if you had one with the pouches for, for water and that, uh, and a day sack. We got dropped off from the ship, ship sailed onto the gun line. We then made our way just off um, the eastern coast of West Falkland uh, towards the entrance to Fox Bay. Going into Fox Bay, there's a little island um, called Knob Island, and it's literally a, a rocky outcrop. I think it's probably perhaps 100 metres across, if that. Um, but quite high, and it's just it's solid rock all the way around the bottom, and then above the the uh, waterline, it's just tussock grass, where and it's precariously clinging. There's no cover, um, and it's very exposed. But we were going to set up our OP on there, um, and then we were going to bring fire down on all the positions around Fox Bay. There was a an airfield of Fox Bay that we knew the Argentinians had been using. Um, and there was, I can't remember if we had hard intelligence, but there was a, a C-130, I think, there at the time, um, or we suspected there was. The positions had been marked out from previous recce's, I think mostly done from the air anyway, uh, and from some patrols that had been in the area from, from various SF organisations. As we went into Fox Bay, towards Knob Island, uh, the, the, all the islands around there are, are surrounded by kelp forest, and, and kelp, it's, I mean, the water's quite deep anyway, because in places, the, the, it, it's like northern Scotland, the, the cliffs just drop down sheer for, for perhaps hundreds of feet, and the, the kelp grows up accordingly. So some of the kelp, literally the, the, the stalks or the trunks are as thick as a man's thigh or thicker, uh, and they're absolutely dense. So as we went in, some of this kelp had wrapped itself around the propeller shaft, uh, or around the propeller, rather, and then it actually come to such an abrupt halt that it had snapped the propeller shaft. So it wasn't a question of it had strimmed the blades or, you know, we could untangle it or anything. Regardless of whether we got it all untangled, the, the propeller shaft itself had snapped. Um, because we'd been so overloaded, uh, we didn't have a second engine. So there was no second engine. As we got to Knob Island, we managed to, to sort of keep the boat nose on to, to Knob Island, I jumped off over the bow of the nose uh, and luckily I had over the, the lifeline on the side because I went straight down and I was completely submerged under the water with my arm up and nothing below my feet but kelp because we'd come up against just a, a rocky ledge and the, the bow of the boat had bumped on that. The guy who jumped out and was holding the bow was lucky in that he was just on the edge of the ledge. I didn't realise he was, neither did he. So when I jumped out, I just went straight down the side of it. But it's lucky I, I, I had hold of the lifeline because I'd have just gone down with the burden on my back. Um, managed to get up anyway. My manners and I made our way round to the northwest side of the island uh, and we just contoured round trying to keep in cover behind the grass. Everything was pitch black. 
And we got set up. The radio had become waterlogged. It's supposed to be waterproof down to one metre. It never is. And I, I put it down to my own inexperience, to be quite honest, that I should have waterproofed it better. Uh, I should have bagged it up in a couple of waterproof bags, bin liners, whatever I could find. Um, but the result was that water had gone into it and we couldn't make it work. So the SP guys that were with us, they had a, a VHF radio. Uh, and we managed to get in touch with the ship on that. Again, that had, that had water ingress in it. Between the batteries being wet, everybody being sodden, it been incredibly cold, uh, and the wind howling as well. Um, we somehow managed to get some fire missions down from, well, from the boat. The reason we'd, uh, we'd abandoned Nob Island was because without the the, uh, the HF, rather, we didn't have the range to necessarily get to the ship with the, the three, uh, 351 uh, VHF, because it's purely line of sight, and it only has a range of a few kilometres. Bearing in mind, Plymouth's tens of kilometres away on the gun line. Uh, we were never going to get there. So from Nob Island, where we were, there was no line of sight. We're on the wrong side of the feature anyway to the ship. So we're on the, the northwest side of the island, and the ship's off to the southeast on the gun line with the island between us. So there was no way we could get comms from the island. So decision was made back in the boat. We'll go back. Uh, it's starting to get light, as it usually does anyway. And trying to get out against the wind and the current was going to be a real issue for us. So back in the boat, we're going to do fire missions from the boat, which we did. We carried out quite a few. Um, everybody's taking turns paddling. Absolutely. It was quite rough, but it was incredibly cold. Um, everybody had hands like you know bags of broken eagle beaks. It was You just couldn't feel your hands. And they, it had gone from, from just being cold and uncomfortable to, to genuine pain, but not being able to to actually control your, your extremities. We were struggling to get out, like I say, against the tide coming in. So people were sat on the tubes, the outside of the tubes, paddling like Hawaii Five-0. Uh, we managed to rig a poncho uh, as a sort of kind of sail. Uh, it wasn't particularly effective because the wind wasn't really coming in the right direction for it. But um, in the end, Plymouth dropped off one of her boats. She came in, took us in tow. Even with that boat going full pelt and everybody else paddling, it was still walking pace getting out of there. Obviously, lights coming up. Plymouth should have been well off the gun line by then because obviously there was a great danger of um, air attack uh, and a single ship by itself was going to be a particular interest. Um, the type, I think she was a type 16 Plymouth, but they had CCAT, which was a very ineffective anti-aircraft weapon. I mean, it was, it was first generation, really. Mm. So not very effective at all. The Mark VI guns that she had, they're very good at anti-aircraft, but again, you know, multiple attacks rather, uh, Exocet missiles, I'm not sure the guns would have been able to take out an Exocet missile. So she she was in real risk, but still remained behind to pick us up mm. well past the time when she should have been off the gun line because um, we wouldn't have got out without that. I don't think we'd have survived if she hadn't. Uh, and I think her, uh, her captain was, was commended for it, and, and he certainly has our appreciation still. But um, back on board Plymouth, Managed to get up the scramble nets, um, taken down below, changed into to dry clothing that we left on board, and then I don't remember anything else apart from waking up on the mess floor in, in one of the, I think it was the PO's mess, uh, because literally people had just dropped from exhaustion when we got back. Mm. I suspect quite a few of us probably had hypothermia as well. But um, even with the dry bags on, the water still gets in. You've obviously got perspiration underneath, which is essentially the same thing. So... Um, but yeah, it was just, it, it was an incredibly hard evening and hard night. Um, 
for probably, I'm not entirely sure we had a, a great effect. I think we did hear later on the, uh, the 130 taking off. Um, whether that was because we were bombarding it, I'd like to think so, but I couldn't swear to it. The Argentines had engaged us, but they believed, I think, we were an air OP because every, all their fires seemed to go high and wide. Yeah. Uh, for which we were also grateful. Okay, and uh, moving on to the, to, to the next one. Uh, moving on then, uh, there was very sort of backwards and forwards between the ships because uh, everybody needed a base to jump from to, to go do various things. Various ships had been uh, engaged, damaged or sunk. Um, so there was lots of movement all the time. With the, the helicopters in the Atlantic conveyor um, going down, there was obviously a, a, a great sort of restriction on what could be accomplished air-wise. So the Wessex 5s and the ship's um, integral helicopters as well, excuse me, were uh, were well overworked, I think, uh, and probably went past all their, their manufacturer's ratings and hours and, and the pilots and aircrew likewise. Um, landing craft were, were always in the water. There was always somebody going somewhere. Falkland Sound was probably the busiest seaport in the world at that time, I think. It was a, there was just never nothing going on. Added to which, there was also uh, air attacks coming on all the time. Uh, we'd get limited warning as well because they'd come from uh, the west from Argentina. So they'd have the bulk of West Falkland before they got to Falkland Sound. Um, I know there was some SF further over there, but from them being able to see these aircraft and reporting them to them actually arriving on task or on site, very little time. The radars um, from the ships, likewise, limited just by the, the geographical features, you know, between them and, and the enemy coming in. And the enemy were coming in really low. I mean, you can't doubt their airmanship uh, and admire it to a certain extent. But, um, yeah, we were, I think we went back to Fearless. Um, when we were on Fearless, Fearless had HMS Arrow parked next to her. So uh, she was off a starboard quarter. Uh, the ramp was down and Fearless was, she was docked up at the time, I remember, but the ramp was still down. An arrow, air raid warning red came in. Arrow started firing the 4-5 gun on the front. 4-5 gun, originally designed as an anti-aircraft weapon anyway. Very effective at it. Very low flat trajectory. Um, but she was pumping out rounds, one every couple of seconds. All fused air burst. All of a sudden, there was an almighty crump from, from beyond the bow. Um, an arrow basically had, um, I think, Fearless had fired one of her sea wolves, uh, a big part of her sea cats, towards this incoming Argentine aircraft. The aircraft had sort of tried to steer out the way of it, but then steered straight into the, the gun line of Arrow's gun and, and basically blew himself up. Mm. Um, I'm only laughing because Seacat was so ineffective. It was like watching <laughs> fireworks on the, the 5th of, of November, you know. And you were in more danger from Seacat when you were ashore than any aircraft was because it had just run out of fuel and it, then it would just go. But also, Seacat um, was line of sight, so the operators focused on the aircraft, and as each trying to guide the, the missile onto the aircraft, you know, the aircraft might fly past under the ship. The sea cat's never going to catch it anyway, but all of a sudden there's an enormous ship in the way. And I know Norland had a very narrow escape from a, a sea cat going over a stern, I think. Mm. But, um, yeah, all sorts going on. Air raid warning reds all the time. Whenever there was an air, air raid warning red, everybody would grab small arms and go up on, on the top deck because every little helps as far as we're concerned. And also, nobody wanted to be down below anywhere if ships were getting bombed and sunk. 
Um, I was a Matlow anyway, and I'd already done three years on HMS Bulwark, so uh, I was quite familiar with ships and quite comfortable on them. For me, it was more the fact that you could go up and potentially do something as opposed to just sitting down below and not being able to do anything. Yeah. And I think quite a lot of people felt like that as well. HMS Plymouth, yeah, same sort of thing. She'd come under air attack, and again, when we'd been on her coming back uh, after we'd been picked up that morning, if there was an air raid warning red, everybody took their small arms up. So it, it was a universal thing. Uh, any ground troops that were on board went above board, went on the top decks with their weapons. Um, we did spend a couple of days on Lancelot, I think, next. And Lancelot was the uh, the SF um, support ship at that time. So they were they were hosting many SF patrols. We went on board, and the place was had already been bombed. So as you went down the um, the main passageway to the the dining hall. There was a big bomb hole up on one side of the bulkhead and a corresponding bomb hole lower down on the other side of the bulkhead. And it obviously passed through the passage. That was quite amusing. Um, yeah, it didn't go off that bomb, did it, fortunately? No, it didn't. No, it didn't. When Lancelot, when it came under air attack, was uh, was bizarrely probably one of the most protected ships, I think, because with all the SF on there, they had stingers, um, GPMGs, all sorts of weapons. So you were fighting for room at the, the guardrail if there was an air raid warning red. Then you had to make sure that you know you weren't stood behind somebody with a stinger. And then she had the two bofers and that flight deck likewise. So, yeah, she, she bristled like a hedgehog, Lancelot, if there was an air raid warning red. I think from there, we went to uh, Operation Brewer's Arms next. Um, by this time... Everybody had pushed forward, uh, and, and Stanley was essentially ringed, I think, by that stage. What we didn't need uh, was the Argentines interfering, as we were heading west on the main axis of advance, uh, the Argentines interfering from the north or the south. I think the south had been cleared uh, anyway. Um, since the debacle with Tristram, uh, I think SF had, had cleared the south anyway. So we correspondently went to clear the north. So north of Stanley, north of Barclay Sound, which is a, a huge waterway up sticks into to East Falkland from the east. Um, there was supposed to be a, a radar station up there, an observation post, uh, and there was supposed to be another site, uh, and I can't remember what kind of site it was. We were dropped off by Sea Kings. We made our way to an LUP, and I couldn't honestly say where it was. Uh, but it was somewhere to the north of Barclay Sound anyway. It's a, it's a huge blank area you'll see on a map if you have one. Mm-hmm. From there, patrols were put out um, to clear the area. Whatever positions the Argentines had there, and it was obvious that they had them there, they'd been withdrawn by then. So it was it was probably as they were drawing back and consolidating in Stanley, they'd moved them out from there. So essentially, I think we spent about six days up there, about a week, um, and the patrols didn't come across any live enemy anywhere, uh, only evidence of them having been there in the past. That was quite a long, boring time, to be quite honest. Weather was particularly bad. Not It's memorable, uh, in my mind, only for a couple of things, one of which was uh, I think the Argentines knew we were up there. Um, we were using HF at the time, which I think they were already listening to anyway. We were using codes, so... The information they were going to get would have been gone by the time they had managed to decode it if they did. We were uh, communicating back to Fearless as their quarter ship. Um, bearing in mind, we're now on the, the east side of East Falkland. She's still on the western side of East Falkland, so she's 40, 50 kilometers away. 
and we try we're trying to you know, contact her via HF via whips um, because there's nowhere literally you could put up a, a wire antenna or a skywave antenna. Um, so it was quite difficult. Voice became so difficult at one stage that um, I became the signaler because I was the only one who could do Morse quick enough. And we actually resorted back to Morse. So we sent in Morse code messages to Fearless uh, as opposed to voice. Um, but it did. It got through and it worked. Um, the reason Morse works is because voice takes up a bandwidth, uh, which I think is something like 1.6 kilohertz from what I remember, uh, for a single side band and three kilohertz for a double side band which is usually U, um, UHF but MOS MOS is just an interruption of the actual carrier wave so it's on off on off so you've got all the power behind that one tiny bandwidth as opposed to trying to push out voice at this bandwidth which obviously take corresponding power mm -hmm. so by virtue of that MOS will go further so the SB signal could do MOS but being a sailor I could do MOS much much faster that was the only reason I was doing it um, but myself, the SB commander, uh, Hugh McMahon is my boss, and the SB signal were all in a tent dug into a, a peat bank and surrounded and camped out. And when we took the tent down at the end, it was actually sat in a couple of inches of water. So we were quite lucky that the ground sheet was actually waterproof. Mm. Prior to that, uh, we'd all been separated. A couple of huge peat bank features. I don't know if you've been to the Falklands or not, if you're if you're cognizant of the topography. No, not yet. It's, um, it's very similar to Northern Scotland. Um, slightly different in that there's a lot more sort of peat outcropping. So uh, it's almost as if you've got some flat ground and then a, a part of it's just been lifted up a metre or two. So it's vertical around the side, the same grass on the top as is in the surrounding area, but it's just like a peat cliff, if you like, surrounding it, uh, a bit like raw Raymer but smaller. Um, yeah. sounds, like the the way to... sounds like the Shetland Islands to me, um, but as you say, Northern Scotland. Yeah, yes, yeah, similar to that. But, um, yeah, and, and the easiest way to, to sort of dig yourself in is just to go straight into the bank, leave as much of the top in place as possible, and then just have a little sort of cubby hole or shelf and, and just get yourself in there. And then the, the stuff that's overhanging will protect you from there. You can you cut a couple of peat blocks from elsewhere and stick them in front and you're invisible. Um, I'd done this once. Uh, we never operated during the day, so it was only at night. We got out, tammed it all up again if we needed to, took out the uh, the stuff that had been blown away or dried out, put new stuff there, just made sure it was still invisible before first light, and then you were stuck in there for the day again. Um, but at one, one day, uh, one of the SB guys walked straight over the top of mine and fell through it. And we only, it was getting light, and I had very little time to patch it up. But um, it was, uh, yeah, that was quite memorable because I'm lying in my sleeping bag. He's on top of me. There's all peat everywhere and all tangled up in the cam. Now I was like, "What are you doing?" I said, "You knew I was here. I've been in the same place all these like three or four days." Anyway, give me had to patch it up. There was no damage <laughs> done, but uh, yeah, that was quite funny. Um, yeah, and it was to be honest, it was just a relief to get out of there because it was a long, boring time. After Fanning Head and Fox Bay, it wasn't even welcome relief. It, it was because with Fanning Head and, and Fox Bay, uh, and I hope it doesn't sound warmongry because it's not, but you wanted to be doing something and you wanted to be, uh, you want well, you wanted some action and excitement. Yeah. If, if you, uh, I mean, I was young and naive enough to, to still enjoy it. But the long periods of boredom uh, that people often remark on in, in combat 
that was definitely one of those. You're always sort of um, you're always on on tenterhooks because you're never sure, you know, where the enemy are if they're going to come and find you. And certainly, I know one of the SB uh, positions had a helicopter hovered over it, which blew quite a lot of its cam off. Luckily, the aircrew didn't see it and moved off. But um, yeah, I mean, you weren't involved in anything, but you're still not switched off if you see what I mean. Yeah. How long? How long did uh, Operation Brewers Arms? Uh, that was go about for? a week, from what I remember. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so we're getting close to the end now. Obviously, uh, Steve, what, 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 uh, what, what, any, any other, any other dramatic moments? Um, we went to from there. We went to um, uh, the last uh, op that we were on, which was Beagle Ridge. Yeah, uh, Beagle Ridge is a feature. It's about six kilometres north of Stanley, and we had Overwatch off Stanley. So by this stage, we're closing in. There's a, a ring of steel, if you like, around around Stanley, Mount Kent, two sisters. They've all been done. Sapper Hill, I think, uh, Tumbledown probably been done by then as well, or close towards. Yeah, we had Overwatch of Stanley, and we were using various ships over what was supposed to have been a six-day period, but in actual fact ended up as 10 days. Um, yeah, basically engaging... Argentine positions around Stanley. So on Beagle Ridge itself, Beagle Ridge is a, a long, narrow ridge of rocky outcrops, perhaps 80 metres wide uh, and perhaps two, 200 metres long, something like that. Mm-hmm. Difficult to judge because it's one ridge, you know, there's a saddle carries on to another ridge and so on and so forth. So to actually delineate a particular area has been, that is Beagle Ridge. But um Certainly within that area, there were, I think, most of, of C Squadron SPS. Uh, there was a, a part of G Squadron, I think, or D Squadron came up halfway through, uh, and they were in there, and then we were in there as well. So you had something like well over 100-odd people, all SF or attached, all in that one tiny area, which is mostly rock, and all completely visible to anybody. It was... Um, Looking back on it now, it, it was it, they were the the epitome of, of, of sort of SF soldiers, if you like. Nobody operated during the day apart from the OP, and the OP was sheltered and, and camped out and had to because obviously we're engaging targets. But um, anywhere else during the day, you could walk straight through the middle of that position and you wouldn't see anything at all. It was it was great, um, and certainly we were learning all the time. Uh, still bitterly bitterly cold. Frost on the ground all the time, and the wind in the Falklands is, is almost constant. Even when it's sunny, you can still be cold, um, much like Scotland, Shetlands, like you say. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the wind is almost incessant. Um, we had a, an LUP uh, down in the middle of the, the ridge between a, a couple of the sort of um, between a couple of the rocky uh, outcrops. Um, I was with uh, Tim Bedford. We were side by side, squeezed together through necessity, not because we were very close. Um, Des Nixon was basically where uh, my feet ended, was where his head was. And again, we've got partial rock outcropping. Stanley's this side, so we're protected from any fire coming that way as well. The OP likewise. Uh, I do have some pictures of the OP and, and various other places as well. But the OP likewise was between two narrow rock features looking out over Stanley. We did at one stage have counter-battery fire. Uh, they knew we were there anyway, and it didn't help that uh, one of the, um, the officers in the sack uh, had basically asked us uh, if we were still north of the settlement. Bearing in mind that Stanley was the only settlement that was 
in Argentine hands. Um, yeah, the next thing was some 155s are, are winging in our way. We're very well protected. We're on the back slope from Stanley anyway. Um, I did find lots of big splinters there some years later when I went back. So we were quite lucky because these were only a few metres away from the OP and from where we were. Mm-hmm. Um, but mostly it was just the noise and the reverberation uh, and a couple of ricochets you could hear, but nothing major. Um, Stanley, you know, Beagle Ridge, we were supposed to be up there for six days. So we'd taken rations for six days and then emergency rations, obviously, for another 24 uh, in the end, we were up there for 10 days and a packet of Bovril powder, you know, you'd have sold your sister for it <laughs> because everybody was starving at the end and we couldn't get a resupply because with the, the final push on Stanley, everything was involved in that. Um, so, yeah, we were, people would have little things that they'd forgotten about at the bottom of their pouch, you know, a sachet of milk powder or something like that. But basically, I don't think we had anything to eat for the last two or three days almost. Stanley itself, the, the 155 positions were uh, down at the, the old race course uh, to the west of Stanley. Uh, we engaged those a couple of times, and um, I'm not saying it's amusing, but one of the things that sticks out was that the, the Argentines would man their guns, um, begin firing. We would then engage the, the guns with NGS, fuse VT high again, so proximity. Um, the gun crews had all run away, uh, perhaps not as many as were there initially. Um, the firing would then cease. They would go back and man their guns. We'd fire on them again. Uh, and there was no way that they could actually counter battery fire the ships because the ships are obviously mobile. The ships are, are well off to the east. Um, they're within range of a 155, but there's no way you're going to hit a moving target like that. So the ships were, they were safe at least from counter battery fire, not from things like Exocet. And there were ground or land launched Exocet available to a Stanley. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly I think Glamorgan uh, was engaged and, and she took, a, a, I think, a, an exocet. Yeah. Um, anyway, the, uh, yeah, we would just we would engage uh, all the various Argentine positions there at the airfield and at various other positions around Stanley. The one fi- uh, 105s from 2-9 Commander Regiment are also uh, online by this stage. They're in close support usually to the, the troops that are advancing from the west. So... Although we did fire them on occasion, most of the time we spent firing the ships. Um, for comparison, the Mark 8 gun, um, which was the, the predominant gun down there, it was on all the 21s and it was on all the 42s. Um, so that was a, originally an anti-aircraft weapon. The shell weighs 46 pounds uh, versus a 105 shell, which is 35 pounds. The rate of fire of the Mark 8 is nominally at least, at least if it works, because it's a fully automatic gun, uh, the rate of fire is 24 rounds a minute. So what you'd be putting down is, is 1,100 pounds of, of explosive ordnance on a target per minute. Six guns in a 105 battery with a 35-pound shell, if they were firing on rate five, one round every 10 or so seconds, which is actually quite fast for a, a gun position, the normal rate of fire of a 105 battery is rate three. So rate five is when you step it up. Uh, and they by would essentially produce the same amount on the ground. I think there's a slightly less. Ours was £1,104 for the naval ship and £1,050 for the, the 105 battery. Um, it's not an exact comparison because the naval shells are thicker walled and have slightly less um, explosive content. 
mm-hmm. but they have a greater range. So the 105s can fire for uh, perhaps 21.5 kilometres, I think, where the naval guns will stretch out to, to 27, absolute maximum. So um, both very effective, both different in their own ways. Gun position, obviously fixed, ship able to manoeuvre. And one of the, the, the big advantages of a ship is that you can fire from a flank when you don't actually possess any, any real estate. And that was one of the great things about the foregrounds was because they were islands and surrounded by sea, you could literally deploy a ship overnight and be on the opposite side of the TEZ to do destruction or harassment or a demonstration or psychological warfare. Yeah. So for, as a weapon system, um, less for aircraft, probably the most effective weapon system down there for, for utility, I think was probably the, the NGS. Uh, and the ships obviously carry a, a, you know, with their anti-aircraft armament. They were invaluable, and certainly we learned a lot of lessons down there of how to use it, what not to do. But you're only as good as your last war, you know. Lots of those lessons, I dare say, have been lost, mm-hmm. as they usually are. Great stuff, Steve. Um, so, so coming well, obviously we're, we're virtually at the end now. So, how did how did the how did the op at um, that final op at on Beagle Ridge end? We could uh, well, we're looking at um, Sapper Hill, which is just outside Stanley to the east. Uh, I'm not sure who was assaulted. I think it might have been the Gurkhas, but we could see from our perspective, uh, we could see troops moving up the the right-hand flank as we're looking at it, and the Argentines retreating down the left-hand flank. So that was because Sapper Hill, from, from where looking, we're looking from the north, is almost like a conical feature. We could literally see people going up one side and other people going down the other. The other notable things, I think, were... Uh, Again, it was the powers that were coming around to the north to, to where we were. So, again, the, the white armbands and white bandanas came out. Looking on Stanley, we, we fired an awful lot of ammunition from a lot of ships, and it was every single night. So the Argentines, and I dare say the civilian population, bless them, but the Argentines were suffering. They knew it was you know, the end game, if you like, but there was no respite from them. And it didn't matter where they were by that stage, because Stanley's right on the coast, the ships can reach anywhere. So the only danger really uh, towards the end was we couldn't engage the westernmost targets because we'd be firing directly towards our own forces coming from the west. So the targets towards the end, we had to, to move towards the airfield end of Stanley, so the eastern end of Stanley, and targets to the south, yeah, uh, southeast, because mm. our own troops were advancing on Stanley from the west. So our fire had to, we had to move accordingly. The four five gun has a low flat trajectory, mm-hmm. so accordingly on the ground, its beaten zone is that much longer. So with artillery and mortars, you can effectively use an artillery gun as a howitzer, uh, which will fire in a high angle and come down, and the, the actual uh, error of probability is small, like a circle. Whereas the naval gun, it's a single charge, so you can't reduce the charge at all. It's always firing on charge super, so you're always going to get the maximum beaten zone on the ground. So therefore, you've got to move your targets further away from your own troops. wasn't an issue at that stage because the 105s from 2-9 Commando were there. They're supporting all the guys doing the final attack. So we can engage targets elsewhere to make sure nobody else interferes or they're not reinforced from elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So the utility still lasted until the end. When we are on Beagle Ridge, we did see some, um, some Argentine aircraft. Um, they were coming from the west. We radioed in as an air raid one in red. I think there were four Mirages came over from the east. They flew to the west towards the fleet. Uh, I don't know if we were the, the first people to warn the fleet of it or not, but um, about 
15 minutes later, something like that, one of them flew back. I don't know what happened to the other three, but we were all hoping that, you know, we, we'd scored. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, there was some value in us being there because we, we gave eyes over Stanley to the rest of the fleet uh, that, weren't ne- that weren't necessarily available to the guys off to the west because they're looking at Stanley's a long, low town. It's a linear town along an estuary. So as they're looking at it along the long axis and we're looking at it from the side, if you like, so we can see much more of it than they can as well. Mm-hmm. So intervisibility-wise, we had more eyes or we could see more of Stanley than anybody else could. Um, and obviously, we we were there covertly, so we're not having to watch out for the enemy as well and give ourselves away by exposing ourselves or anything. Were, were um, you, Steve, at this time, are you aware of the... Uh, uh, there was, uh, apparently, there was an error made uh, by one of the ships in, in, in its gunfire, uh, and it actually uh, killed three three civilians in, in, in or at, around Port Stanley. Do you, do you remember that incident or anything about that? Uh, I remember the boss was really shook up about it afterwards. I'm not sure it was an error by the ship, to be quite honest. I think it was just, as I'm telling you about the the, the low flat trajectory and the long beaten zone of, of the, the weapon. Yeah. Uh, I, I, from memory, and I might be wrong, I can check, but from memory, we were firing somewhere down by the gun position to the west of Stanley. Mm-hmm. So the rounds are actually going over Stanley or over part of Stanley. Um, the nickname of the artillery are the drop shots, as you probably know. So I think on this occasion, it was just unlucky in that one of the rounds landed a, a little bit short. Uh, yeah, and it killed, yeah, it did kill three civilians, including, I think, the vet's wife. Um, we knew about this when we got picked up from Beagle Ridge. When we were back on board. The boss, he went in his cabin. He, was, he wasn't he was inconsolable, but he, he was obviously deeply affected by it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, um, we couldn't really console him, but I don't think it was an error by the ship or it was a, an error by the boss. It was just the characteristic of the weapon system. Um, I, you, it's not something you can ascribe blame to, I don't think, because the nature okay. of indirect fire is that it's indirect, and therefore it's it's subject to, to so many variables, you know, differences in air pressure. The ship is actually moving in 3D. I mean, a gun platform that's moving in 3D is synchronized, fair enough, but it's still firing at a fixed target, you know, yeah. 20 miles away or 10 miles away, rather. It's, uh, yeah, it, just one of those things. Uh, okay. When we found out about it, we were affected by it. It, 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 it. Yeah. But by that stage, I think you're just very pragmatic about it. You know, it's really unfortunate. Would we have fired on that particular target if we'd known they were? I don't even know where they were in relation to the target, to be quite honest. Um, and the civilian population, you know, were they out and about? I, I don't honestly know. But yeah. the fact that there, there were three casualties among civilians, yeah, it, it deeply affected, especially the boss. It didn't take the gloss off, but, it, it, you know, we, we, we would have had those three lives back rather than anything else we'd done. Yeah. You know, we, we would take it all back just, just to have those three people. It, we, it, yeah, it, it, yeah. Okay. Thank, thanks, Steve. And, and, and when you talk about the boss, of course, you're talking about human manners, aren't you? I am, yeah. Yeah, he's... Uh, yeah, he's a great guy. He's a, he's a bit of a musician at the moment and plays in a band. He's got all sort of Jethro Tull and he's got a <laughs> got long grey hair and a big grey beard. He looks a bit cow-weaselish. But, uh, Brilliant. Yeah, but he, I mean, I'm, I'm a child of the 80s, so I'm more, you know, disco and stuff. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure some people enjoy it. Uh, good um, stuff. 
any, from, any, uh, any other last, yeah, the last thoughts, um, Steve? I, uh, I know I kept you a Yeah, from there, we, uh, we essentially, um, we were picked up from there uh, and went back to, I think, Fearless. We were hoping because we'd been, um, we'd basically been attached to, to Sea Squadron throughout that we'd go back with them because they were flying back. Um, special means special. So they were flying back from Falklands. In the end, uh, we got put on Canberra and we sailed back. Uh, so that wasn't popular. But um, yeah, nothing nothing related to the, the Falklands from then, I don't think. the um, When we got back on Fearless, everybody had bought their own kit. Uh, I don't know if you're aware, but lots of people had their own kit. So um, people would go down Army, Navy stores. People had had some stuff that they'd managed to cobble together or, or keep from um, various Arctic training. I thought it'd be a good idea to buy a pair of Dutch para boots because they were fleece lined and high leg. Uh, this is in the days when we were still putties and, and short ankle boots. Um, in the end, they were absolutely <laughs> terrible because as soon as they got wet, they just turned into popsicles. Yeah. Um, we went back. Uh, I think we went back on Lancelot, but um, so we went back to Lancelot. From there, uh, we decided that uh, we'd go ashore to uh, to Ajax Bay because we'd heard that there was a couple of warehouses there that had lots of RG kit in them. So we were going to, um, I was going to get a new pair of boots. Um, went ashore, the, uh, the boot neck provost were there. They wouldn't let anybody in. I showed them, you know, my masking taped toe caps on my boots. No, still can't get in there. You know, you're looters and you'd be shot and all like, you know, you've been sat on board ship somewhere. You've just arrived. And, and there was a bit of resentment there because they were, they were obviously remfs. And they were they were seen to be big up in it, you know. This is our time now, and we're, it just didn't rub with us. So um, we were getting a little bit sort of. Uh, well, I was getting a little bit aggravated. So um, we decided no, we'd uh, we'd see if there was somewhere else we could go. We remembered that Fox Bay had a, a lot of people there. Obviously, we'd been there on a, a previous occasion. So we decided we'd go down the LS, um, see the the LS officer, uh, and see if we get in a helicopter to go to Fox Bay. We told the boss we were only got a couple hundred yards to Ajax Bay, so we thought we'd better keep it quiet. Went down to see the um, the guy there. He said, uh, I've got nothing going to Fox Bay, but I've got a Chinook going to Stanley in a minute. So we said, yeah, well, can we get three places on there? He said, yeah, you can, but you'll have to help out with all the stores. And they were taking boxes of 10-man rations to, to Stanley. So we loaded up the, the Chinook, and it was loaded more or less. You couldn't squeeze in. Uh, we managed to squeeze in round the side of it with a couple other people, took off, landed at the race course. We then unloaded all the rations, and then we went down through Stanley for a, a bit of a wander. By this stage, the paras were in Stanley. We bumped into, I bumped into a couple of people that I'd met on P Company, actually, so that was quite nice. Um, then we went round all the, the positions, see what we could find. Um, lots of weapons everywhere, everybody picking bayonets and you know helmets, that sort of thing. There was a, a HQ building that they'd uh, put in a garage in the middle of Stanley. And the engineers were slowly going forward because the Argentines had actually set booby traps on some of the things. Um, this place was full of new kit and lots of crates of Argentine stuff. So we were at the door when one of the sappers called us back and said, don't go in there, it hasn't been cleared. Des Nixon went up, there was an Argentine helmet on the floor and he just kicked it as far as he could across the, the warehouse. And he said, well, it looks all right to me. Anyway, the engineer buggered off because he wanted nothing to do with it. We got a load of helmets and stuff. Then we went down by the airport, picked up a couple of other stuff, a couple of other bits and pieces. Um, 
I got an Argentine commando berry, an Argentine green commando berry with a commando shield on it, which I've still got. And from there, made our way back to the race course. We picked up a couple of Argentine kit bags, we stuffed them full of weapons and helmets and bayonets and took them back to the guys on board and the boss. Um, when we got on the to the uh, to the race course LS, told them where we wanted to go, and they said, there's a Wessex coming in in a minute. That can take you as far as Ajax Bay. So we thought, fair enough, we'll pick our boat up. Um, in the end, when we got on there, we had a word with the air crew, and we said, look, you know, you've got to fly past Fearless. Is there any chance of a touchdown and we can jump out? So he did. He organised that. Pilot touched down on Fearless. We went back on board, went and saw the boss, give him his booty. Uh, he was still, I think, visibly affected, uh, and he was very much keeping himself to himself at that stage. Um, after that, we just cleaned up, got everything sorted, handed out some of the presents, some of the gizzets, and then transferred to Canberra for the trip back. Well, that was Steve Hoyland giving an extraordinary personal testimony of his time on operations with special forces in the Falklands. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>